Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When someone dies, we're thrown into a world of contradictions. The details of those contradictions are unique to who we are, but the contradictory nature of grief is something most people can relate to. We're exhausted, but we can't sleep. The death feels both painfully real and confusingly surreal. Time can simultaneously seem to be running away from us and barely moving. For many of us, there's the grief face we show to the world and the one we may not even reveal to our closest people. It's confusing, right? Adam Mansbach found himself immersed in these contradictions when his wildly popular New York Times bestselling book, Go the F to Sleep, was published in June of 2011, just weeks after his brother David died of suicide. Adam found himself doing hours and hours of interviews and publicity tours for this funny, irreverent book, all while carrying the world-altering grief of his brother's death. Adam also lived with the contradiction of being a writer who was writing about everything but his brother's death. Now, almost 10 years after David's death, Adam's newest book, I Had a Brother Once, was released earlier this week on April 13th. I Had a Brother Once is a book-length poem that explores the confusion, uncertainty, and contradictions of grieving when someone dies of suicide. It's a visceral book, one that I couldn't stop reading, and once it was done, I went back and reread it the very next day. Each page is a roller coaster ride through the concrete and abstract ways that we wrestle with the unknowns when someone dies of suicide. Adam puts grief into words in a way that is unique, rare, and powerful. Adam Mansbach is also a novelist, screenwriter, cultural critic, and humorist. In addition to Go the F to Sleep and the sequel, You Have to Effing Eat, he's authored the novels Rage is Back, Angry Black White Boy, and The End of the Jews. And listeners, be advised, as you might be able to guess from the titles of Adam's books, there's some salty language in this episode. Okay, here's my interview with Adam about his new book, I Had a Brother Once. Adam, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud to talk with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. And you describe your brother David in your book, I Had a Brother Once. You describe him as not hard to love, but hard to feel close to. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about him and your relationship and your connection. Yeah, he he certainly wasn't hard to love. He was a a lovely guy, very caring, very considerate, very civic-minded and charity-minded, you know, but also kind of a weird guy, a guy that was difficult to have an emotional conversation with because the kinds of questions that might normally elicit an emotional response might instead elicit something utterly different and unexpected, like a recitation of facts. My family is is very much a literary family. Words are kind of our stock in trade. You know, I come by this honestly. My grandmother was a poet. 
My father is a journalist. My mother used to be a journalist. I have an uncle who's a sports writer. My grandfather was a, a judge who was known for the eloquence of his legal opinions, which is not a phrase you hear all that frequently. <laughs> legal opinions are not known <laughs> for being very readable generally. Um, and my brother kind of occupied a different quadrant. He was a scientist. So he was maybe methodical where we were passionate. He thought differently, I think. And in retrospect, also, and this is what happens when you try to reconstruct somebody's life after they commit suicide, there was an intense level of deception that he was engaged in with every answer to every question. So when I go back and think about some of those recitations of fact, I wonder if it was his natural mode of answering or his way of not opening a door inside of himself that he then might not have been able to close. So, you know, as with everything about him, there are ways in which I feel like I did know him and ways in which I now second guess everything that I thought that I knew. Yeah, I miss this going back and thinking through something that appeared to be a part of his personality. And now this questioning of like, did it serve a function? Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, one of, one of my struggles in the book and in life with this is not to believe too much in my own narrative. I mean, as a writer and as a human being, I'm trained to kind of create narrative, tell stories. And the more you tell a story, the more it becomes the story, but the more it sort of concretizes and becomes something that you and the people listening may believe. And the struggle for me is to try to tell the story without having there be one story that I do believe. So on one level, there's that temptation to be analytical and forensic and look at my brother's personality and the ways in which to me then and now, you know, it seemed cobbled together. It seemed like a bunch of traits borrowed from other people in our family that I could identify and easily trace. But who knows? Like, again, that may be authentically who he was, a guy who didn't really understand himself well enough and had to borrow from others. Things like taste in music and ways of relating and even expressions, um, which again, to some extent, we all do all of those things. Or maybe all of that was a way of uh, relating because there was so much turmoil going on inside and he couldn't focus on the exterior enough to like build what we would normally look at as a full personality and instead had to do these things, not because he didn't have one, but because his was so buried and he was so invested in keeping it buried, if that makes sense. It's interesting too that you talked about words being kind of the stock and trade of your family uh, for generations. And, you know, in your book, you write the words of getting the call from your father that your brother had taken his life and that it took you eight years to write those words, to write that story. And it seems like in throughout your book, there's times of mentioning how hard it was for you and your family to put David's death into words, to talk about him, to talk about his death. And I, I wonder what it's like now to have put it into words, knowing that these words are about to be read by everybody when your book comes out on April 13th. It, it was certainly something that I knew, I always knew I needed to do. For those eight years that I spent not writing about David, there was a profound sense that I was avoiding it or that everything else I was writing was light work compared to this thing that was looming over me. Not that I was distracting myself 
or that I didn't enjoy any of the other work I was doing. I'm lucky in that I'm kind of a polymath when it comes to writing and I enjoy all the work I do, whether I'm writing a humor book or a screenplay or a thriller or a novel, you know, it's all good work. It's all enriching to me, but there was this very palpable sense I had that until I wrote about that, everything else was facile, was bullshit, but I never even started. Like I had a lot of conversations about how I needed to write about my brother and maybe how I might attempt to with other writers, with friends, but I would always be stymied before I got started. I tend to think of myself first as a novelist. So it was like, well, is this some kind of a novel? What is the scaffolding? What is the plot? How much is going to be real and how much is going to be invented? Is it a long form essay? How would I construct that? You know, I thought a lot about structure and the way in which I would put the thing together, which stopped me before I started because it was like inconceivable to me. But I never stopped thinking about writing it. And I also never stopped thinking about what it might mean and how it might impact my family were I to write about it. My parents, my brother's widow. It, it took me kind of accidentally returning to a form that is one of my earliest loves and favorites, very much by accident. I was asked to write a poem. I was commissioned by my friend Mark Bamuti Joseph to write a piece for the San Francisco Jazz Festival. They were doing a thing where they were pairing a bunch of poets up with a live band to do a week of performances. So he, he asked me to write a piece. So I wrote the first poem I had written in years and years. It was an elegy for Fife from a tribe called Quest who had recently died. And then I spent a week hanging out with some great poets, some old friends, performing with a band, which is something I used to do all the time. And all of that kind of like made me remember like, wow, at its best, poetry can be an incredibly affecting form. And after that week was over, it was the week my brother would have turned 40. And I think those two things together kind of galvanized me. And I sat down and I started writing what ended up being a book length poem. A lot of my concerns about structure and scaffolding were immediately ameliorated by this form because it allowed me to say everything I wanted to say without worrying too much about how to connect one idea to another. I was able to write much more kind of intuitively. I don't want to be overly romantic or mystical about it. Like, I've never had a writing process like this. I wrote sort of to the exclusion of all else for about three weeks was sitting in this room that we're talking in right now and I was crying and I was just very, very deep in it. And in some sense, the book took me eight years to write. In some sense, the book took me three weeks to write. You know, both are kind of true. And I also allowed myself the freedom to, in the text, repeatedly kind of put forth an idea and then immediately decide that I was wrong, you know, and continue, not erase that idea, but put it forth debate it with myself and then kind of like move on to the next, you know, embrace kind of some of the paradoxes of David's life and death and the fact that there's so much that I don't know, you know, and allow that to be okay, allow that to be part of the narrative so that again, I didn't whittle it down to some narrative that I ended up investing in and pretending was true. As you're talking, I was thinking about how poetry or the poem that you wrote as a parallel little of grief, right? Where there's a lot of questions, there's not a lot of answers, we don't need to come up with an answer. And that the the reduction of structure and expectation 
lessens the buffer between you as author and us as as reader. I'm not a writer in that way, but I think about a novel or a screenplay. There's like an arc and a plot and a beginning and an end, and it has to go somewhere. And with grief, grief doesn't always go anywhere. It just is as it is. And that's what this poem, this book, that was my experience of reading it as I was just there with you, with the questioning, with the paradoxes and the contradictions. And, you know, I, I was wondering... What have you, what did you discover about grief and about yourself and grief in these eight years since David's death? Um, it's actually more like 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it was eight when I started writing the book, um, but the publishing world being what it is, it's, it's about to be 10. One of the things that I remember worrying a lot about in the early days was that I was grieving incorrectly or insufficiently and that the wages of that failure were going to be that the grief was going to somehow multiply and come back with a vengeance, right? Like if you didn't, you know, if you only wound it, but don't kill it, it goes back to its cave and recuperates and lifts weights and drinks protein shakes and comes back like bigger and stronger, which, you know, was an idea that I didn't really, I, I, that, that did not do me any good. You know, like worrying about this <laughs> was not was not productive. I, I know who kind of put it in my head. Um, and yeah, I, I wish I hadn't held on to that quite as much. I think that when you are grieving, when you are experiencing a loss, particularly a loss that is so far outside of the mainstream of loss as suicide, um, suicide robs you of some of the, the, the ways that we tend to grieve, or at least it complicates them, right? Like, how do you celebrate a life when the person who lived that life doesn't seem to think that it was worth living? How do you mourn a loss if that, if that loss was actually a deliberate decision made by that person to take themselves away, right? It, it throws these things into a certain kind of confusion. And for me, I was made starkly aware of how little ritual I have in my life, how few practices I have to fall back on. I come from a family of secular Jews, right? Holy agnostic, nobody goes to a synagogue. I was not bar mitzvah, I'm still an elderly boy in the eyes of the Jewish community, you know? Um, and it's when you don't, it's when you need ritual that you realize, shit, I don't have ritual. You know, there was a lot of, of grappling with that, of, of trying to figure out, you know, is a ritual even a ritual if you're like inventing it on the fly? What is the purpose of ritual? And also, you know, one of the, one of the utterly bizarre things about this entire time and experience for me was what else I was juggling at the time. My brother died at exactly a moment when I was experiencing kind of the most public success that I could have ever imagined as a writer. I, uh, I you know, again, 10 years ago, I, I published this book called Go the Fuck to Sleep, which is, you know, an obscene fake children's book that I never thought would do anything, that I was tickled was even being published. But it ended up sort of striking a chord and entering the zeitgeist in this crazy way that I won't get into. But at the time that David died, it was the number one book in the world, um, three weeks before being published. And I was 
dealing with this kind of frenzy of media attention and booking national television appearances and doing media every day for the next year. Like every single day I was on the phone for hours with press from around the world talking about this book. I was juggling this kind of bottomless private grief with this public performance of joy, public performance of surprise, public performance of like, I'm the luckiest asshole in the world, you know, um, which was bizarre to toggle between the two things. And it also gave me almost like an exterior look at myself. Like there was a way in which another thing I worried about was like, I mean, I worried about so many things. I worried about like breaking down on camera on the Today Show, which is not going to happen. Like those are not the circumstances where you're going to have some emotional outpouring. It's far too regimented and and like weird for that. But I also worried that somebody was going to like blindside me with a question about my brother, right? Which again, like that's not a realistic fear. There's very, very little chance Nobody has anything to gain by doing that, right? Like Kathy Lee Gifford is not going to pivot from like, oh, we all love your book, ha, 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 to like, we heard your brother died a week ago. Nah, like, that's not going to happen, but I still worried about it. But mainly what I thought about a lot was how I would look, how I must look to other people watching me, knowing what I was going through. Like, what did my friends and my family think watching me you know, grin and chat with, with, you know, the hosts of the Today Show or, you know, some NPR host or whatever, like, how did they feel about the profound lie that on some level I was telling by omission? And I was just aware of that all the time. And that was sort of another thing that was folded into the grief was the, the idea that I was like living this life as if my brother hadn't died, presenting a, ver a version of myself to the public that elided the grief I was feeling. And that in some way, that was a bizarre confirmation of what he held to be true, that he didn't matter. You know, that we, that, 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 that everybody was better off without him or, or whatever the logic was. Um, so all of that was like snarled up in there and weird and painful and estranged the grief and made it, again, like another factor that made this particular type of grief confusing and hard to get my mind around. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that idea that here you are, like, I think in your book, you write about like the hustle, like I went into the hustle of work, and there was some yeah. protection or salvation in that in that way. You, don't, you did not use the word salvation. But this idea that by doing that, there's this also wondering, how are people viewing me? How are people? How are my friends and family taking that? How is that affecting them? How is that affecting how they see me? And then also this idea of like, it's perpetuating this idea that David's life didn't matter or that him not being here wouldn't make a difference when it was making such a huge difference, but you couldn't be showing that to the world in that time. And here you are 10 years later going out again to promote a book, but this time all about David and all about that grief and wonder what's, how are you anticipating that the media frenzy of promoting this book? I mean, I should be so lucky as to have a media frenzy. <laughs> Let's start with that. I mean, you know, a a memoir in verse is unlikely to engender uh, the kind of attention that the last time I wrote a, bo a book in verse, you know, did. Um, so, if I was in charge, it would, but I'm <laughs> not in charge that. of these things. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, writing the book was a a part of my grieving process. Uh, 
an eventual part of my process. And in, in a similar way, I feel like the book's entry into the world and into the public square is also a part of that process. Before it became clear that I wouldn't be able to tour this book in person because of the pandemic, I put a lot of thought into how I would present the book to audiences in a live setting, because that seemed like another step, a ritual of sorts, if you will. I'm happy and relieved in a way for the book to finally be in the world. It's been a long path getting here, both the not writing it, the writing it, and then the path to publication. And I feel like talking about the book and talking about my brother is important for me. Um, and I, I even hope that it might be helpful or useful to other people. One of the weird things about publishing a book at this moment is the way in which we're all sort of processing loss and trying to figure out in some sense how to re-enter the world. I didn't anticipate that when I wrote the book or even when I sold the book. But there, I think, is something parallel about the ways in which grieving a death by suicide removes you from some of the mainstream ways that folks grieve and the rituals that we can avail ourselves of, and the way that grieving during a pandemic does the same thing. It, it has meant for so many folks that they cannot avail themselves of basic rituals and basic experiences that would be healing and helpful, whether that's just being in community and in person or like a funeral. Those things are important and they're, they're markers and they're things that have significance and have history behind them. I didn't get to do most of those things when my brother died. And I feel like in the past year, a lot of folks have not gotten to do those things. So I feel like there's a weird parallel. And I guess, yeah, it's, it, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of, you know, it's funny because my publicist keeps saying like, listen, like, you don't have to talk about anything you're not comfortable with. Like we can, we can make sure that nobody, and I'm like, look, I wrote the book, you know, there's, there's, there's not that much that I have to say that isn't in the pages of that book. I can rephrase it and I can elaborate on it and I can try to talk about what writing the book meant to me. But like, I feel like I did that and that was the hard part and talking about it is not the hard part. Talking about it, and this is true of any project that I've ever written, like the duality of writing is that you're either very alone, working in solitude, or you're very public talking about the work you did in solitude, hopefully to a lot of people. And that yin and yang is important to me and it always has been. I really, really enjoy the process of the public discussion, whether that is a book like this or something much lighter. So yeah, I, I, I look forward to it and I don't know what people will ask me. And I think I've learned to be okay not having answers to everything that people might ask me. It, it feels good to me to have the book coming out and to be engaging in these kind of conversations. And I'm hopeful that they can be of some use to folks as well. How did you connect with David about your writing before he died? He read all my books. So 10 years ago when he died, I was primarily just a, a straight up novelist. I'm much more of a polymath now. But, but when he died, I was pretty much just a guy who at any given time was like knee deep or waist deep or neck deep in a novel. And every, you know, two or three or four years, I would publish one. And when I did, he would read it. He would let me know that he had read it. We would talk about it. 
so he was very supportive and you know my my whole family was um way way back earlier than that i remember you know i'm i, I i'm three years older than him so like i was a senior in high school when he was a freshman and you know writing was not his passion the way it was mine but he was good at it and he had a facility with words and he could be very funny and i remember like roping him into writing for the high school newspaper when I was the editor-in-chief or roping him into doing a thing like for the school yearbook that my homegirl was the editor-in-chief of and she wanted me to write something and I was like let me do it with my brother I'll write a day in the life of a senior and he'll write a day in the life of a freshman so like he was a he was a reader he was definitely a reader he was a real reader actually the more I, th I haven't thought about this in a long time but yeah he was a real reader he read novels he read in English and in Spanish. It was actually one of the more paradoxical things about him because he he digested these big, emotional, powerful books, even though it was hard to get any idea what he thought of any of them or what impact they had made on him. You know, we grew up on some of the same writing, like, you know, Dave Barry was a big deal in our household. My father used to, before Dave's humor column Dave so Dave was at the Miami Herald but he had a syndicated humor column that he wrote every week and he won a Pulitzer for and before it was syndicated in the Boston Globe where my father worked my father would print it out off the AP wire and bring it home and we would all read it 30 years later I now write books with Dave and I wish my brother you know was here to see that because it would it would I mean for me it's still wild that I write books with Dave for my parents it's wild that I write books with Dave but he was like a, 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 a you know a childhood comedy hero of mine and of my whole family's. There was a, a, a lot that we shared in terms of like appreciation of humor in, in a literary form. Like those are actually some of the things when I think about it that most actually most quickly come to mind in terms of like a communal shared connection and experience with my brother is like reading, you know, reading Dave Barry's stuff. I was wondering too, Adam, when when you're when David died, you were a son to your parents, you're a grieving sibling, you were also a parent. And wondering how David's death and your grief has affected or shaped or, sh or changed in some way your relationships with your parents, with your other family members and and as a parent too. Yeah, you know, my, my daughter Vivian is about to be 13. And she was two when David died. And uh, I now have two other daughters. I now have a 13-year-old daughter, a four-year-old daughter, and a two-year-old daughter. There's a lot of levels to that. I think and worry a lot about their mental health, what they may have inherited. You know, depression runs in families, obviously. My brother had it, and he got it from both sides, from my grandmother on my father's side, my grandfather on my mother's side, my great uncle, my aunt, you know, like it's, it's, it's on both sides of the family. I think my family became accustomed to thinking that depression is something that you live with because so many people did, as opposed to looking at depression as something that can kill you. It makes me want to be incredibly vigilant as a parent for any sign of depression in any of my children. It also makes me want to impress upon them the fact that there's no shame in it and that there's nothing to be gained from hiding it. One of the other sort of paradoxes of my brother is that despite all of the depression on both sides of our family that are not a secret in any way, he felt 
clearly a lot of shame at it and hid it and did not tell anyone. His wife sort of knew, but she was like sworn to secrecy. Like, if you tell anyone, I'll never speak to them again. He eventually, you know, eventually very near the end, my parents knew and I didn't know. I mean, there was, there was all of this, yeah, all of this secrecy around it. And I guess I want to impress upon my kids that, that that's, you know, that that's not a, a way to handle depression. There's also a sense of, of like, the sense of the fragility of life is, is not news to anybody. But, you know, I, I, I look back at the time when my brother was alive and, and sort of think these were, these were the good times that we didn't know were the good times until they were over. And I think about that all the time now that I have like three beautiful, healthy children and a, a relationship that works and a house that's filled with like love and music and friends and activity. I'm very, very aware of like the, the, the poignancy and the fragility of all of that and what could lie beneath it, you know? After my brother died, there was, I remember I write in the book about a conversation with my mother where she asked me if I was depressed, if I'd ever been depressed. And I said, no, which is true. And she was like, how do I know that you're not lying? And it's like, right, who, who is going to deceive us next? Who else is hiding some terrible secret just below the surface that could explode at any moment and change everything forever? I think all of it just feeds into my desire as a parent to just keep lines of, communica of communication incredibly open. And part of that is being open with them. I agonized for a long time about how to tell my oldest daughter how this uncle that she doesn't really remember had died, how to broach the idea of suicide, because I also didn't want it to be this dark thing hovering over her childhood. But, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to figure those things out. It's hard to find the moment. It's hard to know what to say. That luckily is sort of behind me now, but it's still ahead of me with my two other kids. What are the ways that you talk about David as your brother? Like, how do you talk about him with them? It's a good question. Um, Vivian will, my oldest will ask me sometimes, you know, I mean, especially as this book is is coming out and like, she doesn't feel ready to read the book. I asked her if she was going to read it. She was like, nah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> you know, like you, you can keep your own counsel about when you choose to read the book. If you ever read the book, I try to, I try to tell stories about him. I try to tell little anecdotes. I try to give her some impression of him. And I try not to like whittle it down to like the two or three old chestnuts, right? Like the two or three anecdotes that somehow in, in, in encompass who he was. But, you know, honestly, I could I could probably make more of an effort. It's not usually top of mind for me to be like, let me tell you about my brother. With my own parents, like he doesn't come up all that much. It's still really hard to talk about him. I think there were years where if my if anybody mentioned his name, including her, my mother would like burst into tears. So what happens? You You kind of pull back from that. But it's nobody's intention to like stop talking about him. It's nobody's intention for him to fade out of our lives. So that's a, a tricky thing to navigate. We don't talk about his death, really. We talk about childhood stuff. We talk about memories that my father has. And it's also interesting, everybody, everybody is in some way grieving and, and, and grappling in their own private way. 
even my parents, I think, who live together, who have been married for, you know, decades upon decades, I don't, I don't, in some ways they're grieving together. In some ways they're grieving apart, but in the same space. You know, I know that my father looks at a lot of photos. You know, he, he really, he gets joy from looking back over David's life and, 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 and remembering things. And my father happens to have an incredible steel trap memory because he spent 40 years working in a newsroom. So, you know, for him, that's helpful and pleasant. I think, I don't think my mother does that at all. You know, I do it sometimes, but not, not that frequently, mostly on like around or near his birthday or the anniversary of his death is when I like go to my photos. It took me a very long time to like frame a photo of him and put it up. After I wrote this book was the first time that I like took a photo and made a space for it 365 days a year, not like two days a year. You just touched on so much there of like how we all grieve differently. And I, and one of the things I hear a lot from families who have had someone die of suicide and also maybe someone who has died, um, if they were murdered or they die of substance use that their life and how we remember them gets occluded by how they died, that the story of how they died takes over the story of how they lived and that a, a lot of the work for families is to make space for the person and the life that they lived and the relation, the ongoing relationship they have with that person, even if they're not here in their physical form, maybe not completely separate from, but in addition to how they died. And it sounds like this writing this book has sort of done that for you. It's definitely done something. I mean, I, I said that I mentioned that I started writing it around his 40th birthday. He died on May 28th and I was finished with the book or a draft of the book by then. And, you know, that's the hardest time of the year for me. And I was certainly much more able to face it having done this work. I felt very, very different facing that day with this book behind me. What you're saying rings very true to me. I, I, I think in the book, I, I, I talk a little bit about con movies, which I happen to have written a couple of in, in the past few years, and the way in which, you know, in a classic long con movie, the ending and the revelation of the subterfuge kind of ramifies, ripples back through the entire movie and makes you rethink and reconsider everything you saw and realize that none of it was what you thought it was. And I think that suicide has the same effect on a life. One of the kind of very frustrating and insidious things about it is how it dislocates all of the memories that you have and makes you wonder if, if what you thought had happened really happened or whether you're utterly misreading it. It, can, it. it has the potential to sap and leach a lot of the joy out of everything you do remember because of what you now imagine to have been running subterraneanly underneath every interaction, every experience. So I think, you know, there's, there's a struggle to not let that take over. Again, like one of the things that I've written about in this book and tried to learn and tried to like take in is the idea that you have to hold paradox in your mind and not try to resolve it. Like my brother was planning to live and planning to die at the same time. And I don't think these two things were like jousting for supremacy in his mind. I think that his mind was really just navigating both these things at once. In the book, I compare it to a train station with two sets of tracks running in opposite directions, right? It's like we got to his 
apartment, my cousin and I, after he died, found that he had ordered like a very expensive skateboard for himself that had not yet arrived, you know? And there's an impulse to be like, aha, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. This doesn't add up. A man who's still waiting on a skateboard would never kill himself. Nah, that's not how it works. That might be how it works in like a TV show. That might be your proof of foul play in a TV show, but it's not proof of anything other than the fact that the human mind is complicated and the mind of a depressed person, a suicidal person, can embrace both the, 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 a future in which they're alive and a future in which they're dead at the same time. Sorry, I, I don't know if I answered. I don't even remember what the question was anymore. <laughs> you definitely answered it, whatever, because I don't remember what it was either. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking about how when someone in our life dies and grief comes into our world, it oftentimes dislodges what we know about ourselves to be true. Like we no longer feel like we know ourselves and how to predict how we're going to be in the world. And what you were saying adds a layer of when grief comes into our world and someone has died of suicide, it often dislodges what we thought we knew to be true about the other person and our perception of them. So I appreciate you articulating that in a way I hadn't really thought about before. And so Adam, your book comes out, I had a brother once, it comes out April 13th. And I know in COVID times, like launching a book, as you mentioned, is so different. But if listeners are wanting to be a part of any readings that you're doing or book launch events, like what would be the best way for them to get connected to that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I am doing a number of virtual events, mostly conversations with other writers, most of them friends and people that I'm very much looking forward to talking to about this you can find a list of events I'm doing on my website. It, it, it's adammansback.com. And if you go to adammansback.com slash events or click on the events button on top of my website, which until like 24 hours ago, exclusively listed events from like 2016. So I'm very happy to report <laughs> that that's no longer the case. Um, you can see what I'm doing. Yeah, it is weird to be promoting a book in, in COVID times. So, you know, I'm doing these conversations at bookstores. I'm also doing a series of conversations on Instagram, again, with like friends and co-conspirators um, talking to, and you know, again, it's bizarre that this is like how you promote a book during COVID times, but the day of the book's publication, the day after, the day after that, I'm speaking to a, a long list of luminaries, um, everybody from my friend W. Kamau Bell, to my friend Kate Schatz, to my friend Bryant Terry, to my friend uh, George Watsky to my friend Keo of the X-Men. He's a graffiti writer. He's not an actual, he doesn't possess actual mutant <laughs> that we're aware of, but um, he's illustrated. He's, he's, he's done a few of my book covers and is a, a, a good buddy of mine. Anyway. Yeah. You can check, I guess my Instagram for more information about these Instagram live conversations. It'll be upcoming. I'll have information available there point you in the right direction. Great. Well, listeners, I'll put all that in the show notes so that you can easily find um, a way to connect with Adam and the book launch and all these conversations that I'm I'm going to go sign up for them right now. So I'm really looking forward to that. And Adam, again, just appreciate one, the honor of being able to read your book. I think I shared with you at the beginning of our interview that I read it twice in a row and I would have to stop every page and just take it in. So very grateful for your willingness to take what was living inside of you for eight years and share it with all of us and to come on the show today and talk with me. I'm just really grateful. Thank you. This has been a really wonderful conversation for me. I appreciate it. 
And listeners out there, I offer my gratitude to you each and every time for being part of our show, for making it mean something in the world. If you, I love hearing from you. So please email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. I'd just love to hear like, what does the show mean to you? And if you have ideas for topics or things we haven't talked about yet, also include those. If you're new to our show, you can find all of our past episodes at our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot forward slash grief out loud. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.